0: Producer Sam Phillips believed everybody had a song to sing. And lucky for us, some of those singers were named
2: Howlin' Wolf, Elvis Presley, and Johnny Cash. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We talked to Peter Goralnik about Sam Phillips, Sun Studios, and the birth of rock and roll. Plus, Adele's chart-busting new album, 25. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
0: This is Sound Opinions, and later on in the show, Jim, you and I are going to deal with the Godzilla of the pop charts. (laughs) Adele is dominating the pop charts, 3.3 million sold in her first week. That is a record. She's not on any of the streaming services. If by chance you have not heard this record yet, we're going to let you know whether or not it's a sound purchase later on in the show. But first, Greg,
2: we have some music news. (laughs)
0: That is dance to the music from Sly and the Family Stone and that famous ebullient voice of Cynthia Robinson, the trumpet player in Sly and the Family Stone. The reason we're playing that excerpt from that great song uh, highlighting Cynthia is that Cynthia Robinson died at the age of 71 of cancer a few days ago. She was a guest on our show, Jim, in 2014, talking about her life in Sly and the Family Stone and what a life it was. She was uh, childhood friends. With a Sylvester Stewart, as he was known in California back in the day. She herself was an aspiring musician. She gravitated from the flute to the clarinet to her final love, trumpet. She became one of the great trumpet players in the rock lexicon beginning in the 60s. She and Sly formed a band together, Sly and the Stoners in the mid-60s, but it was Sly and the Family Stone that had the big hits. First album called A Whole New Thing. Things really exploded in 1967 with Dance to the Music, followed by hits like Everyday People, Stand, Hot Fun in the Summertime, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again. Just a string of great hits. And it's important to note that not only musically was this band groundbreaking in the way it mixed up funk and rock and soul, but you know the biracial co-ed nature mm-hmm. of this group uh, really spoke to the counterculture. I think in many ways... Sly and the Family Stone embody that vibe better than any band from that era. And Cynthia Robinson was was a key, key player in all of that greatness. I want to highlight one of the uh, great examples of her playing on a Sly and the Family Stone record. In fact, she was highlighted on the very first track on the very first Sly and the Family Stone record. This is a track called Underdog from Sly and the Family Stone with Cynthia Robinson on Sound Opinions.
1: No high speeds to expect to get a fair shape, but they won't let you forget that you're not
2: Underdog by Sly and the Family Stone in tribute to Cynthia Robinson, dead at the age of 71. Check out our interview with her in the archives at soundopinions.org.
1: Hey baby, jump over here when you do the ooby dooby. I just gotta be near you.
2: If you're listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is Ooby Dooby by the great Roy Orbison, who was then with a group called the Teen Kings. It was produced in 1956 by Sam Phillips at Sun Studios in Memphis and released on his Sun Records label. Now, if Sam Phillips, Sun Studios, Sun Records are names that are new to you, Roy Orbison is just the beginning of a long list of artists who emerged out of that world in the 50s and 60s. In fact, many rock historians credit Sun with giving birth to what we now know as rock and roll. Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Howlin' Wolf, Ike Turner, Johnny Cash. Sun was home to black artists, white artists, all of whom were merging genres in ways that were unheard of at the time. Country, gospel, rhythm and blues, it was all coming together to form what we now know as rock and roll. We take it for granted now, Greg, but it was virgin territory at the time.
0: Yeah, so it's not surprising, Jim, that uh, Peter Goralnik, of all the great writers in America, would want to take this topic on. I mean, Peter's written extensively about American music for decades, including a two-part biography on Elvis Presley, the biography Searching for Robert Johnson, and an acclaimed uh, trilogy on American roots music. Now he's back with a comprehensive look at Sam Phillips called The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. Peter, we're glad you could join us. Welcome to Sound Opinions. Well, thanks very much. So you've written a lot about Sam Phillips through your reporting on a number of artists who worked with him. Tell us about getting to know Sam.
3: Well, I met Sam in 79. I'd been trying to get together with him for almost 10 years at that point. Sam was doing no interviews, none whatsoever, because he saw it as a transgression against history. Mm. So finally, in 1979, I I did get together with him. And and it was probably, uh, I would say that uh, he was the most charismatic person I ever met. And it was one of the most inspiring meetings I've ever had.
2: I love the story I read somewhere, Peter, of how you got together with him in 79. That, that's when you wound up uh, helping him recover from a flood in the studio, <laughs> right?
3: <laughs> well, I mean, it was, I, I met him out at his new radio studio, WLVS, which had just uh, taken that name. Sam was totally dedicated to radio. When I arrived, uh, Samson Knox came out to the uh, curb, and he said... Um, you know, Peter, I'm afraid we're going to have to postpone the interview. And I think my face must have fallen through the floor, through the pavement. And Knox uh, and said, well, we've had a flood. The sprinkler system has let go and the whole studio has flooded this brand new studio, yeah, which yeah. Sam had designed, had built, you know, had uh, been involved in every square inch of, being of limited resourcefulness, but at least of a, a tiny bit. And said, isn't there something I could do to help? And then I spent the next eight or nine hours uh, squeegeeing, (laughs) carrying, you know, buckets of water, moving tapes, uh, dusting off stuff. I mean, it was, you know, I I was just a willing tool. But one of the things that was most interesting about it, and it was something that I realized, I think even at the time, was in watching Sam command this legion of people. I mean, I met everybody that day. I met his whole family. Everybody was there helping out. And Sam was just commanding their attention, their loyalty, uh, and their actions in a way that was just galvanizing. And I realized, well, I'm never going to see Sam Phillips produce a record session. But here, here I'm seeing him produce a session. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from my point of view, that was... I mean, it wasn't that hard to make the most of it, but I wasn't prepared as... As Solomon Brick once uh, said to me, he says, bile can consume you. So stay away from the bile and go on the upbeat.
0: Yeah, yeah. you paint a very nuanced portrait of Sam Phillips in this book, and uh, I think in some ways he was both uh, a great leader and at the same time a very personal private guy who was hard to get to know and hard to warm up to. What I'm fascinated by is the detail you, you bring to his early life Uh, and his relationship to African-American culture, leading to this sort of visionary approach as a a producer. Talk about Uncle Silas a little bit and the role that he played in young Sam's life.
3: Well, Silas Payne uh, was a blind black sharecropper whom the Phillips family took in when Sam was maybe 12 years old. And Sam always held him up as one of the three most influential people in his life. There was Silas Payne, there was his deaf-mute aunt Emma, and there was the madam of the local House of Ill Repute who gave Sam a discount when he was fifteen, but who Sam said was just a model of humanity in terms of the way she treated the women, of the dignity that she gave them, and and the way she ran her business. He said she was the best businesswoman he had ever business man he had ever met, business person he had ever met. But uh, Silas Payne was somebody who Sam felt was so attuned to the universe, I guess. His blindness was scarcely a handicap, just as Sam's Aunt Emma's uh, deafness and uh, muteness were scarcely a handicap, and they made the most of the opportunities they were given. And Silas Payne just invested this 12-year-old Sam Phillips, this sickly kid, with a belief in himself, with a belief in the world's possibilities, with a belief in in the freedom that came from the imagination, not from what you were given, that Sam took this as a lesson that he carried with him everywhere for the rest of his life. I mean, one of the key elements, uh, Silas Payne would tell him stories about Africa, about the buckwheat trees, and the, like the Lemonade Springs or something. And as Sam said, you know, he never went to Africa. This was, he was speaking about the imagination. He was speaking about the power of the imagination, about how your imagination could take you anywhere. And his greatest lesson of all, Sam said, was even if you're feeling bad, you're feeling good. I mean, that life offered you those opportunities, and you had better take them.
0: The way you tell it, he was hearing this music coming from the cotton fields, you know, his father's farm in Alabama. Far more exciting than anything he was hearing, for example, in his own church services he, he seemed to have a an affinity for this kind of music from a very early age, which strikes me as unique, I think, in some ways because here's you know you're raised in the in a in a time where civil rights were very much a questionable activity could get you in trouble if you were a white guy in the south to honor black culture, but he seemed to he seemed to love it and embrace it from an early age. Uh, how do you explain that
3: well, I think Sam always uh, said that from the time he was just a small child, he was always different, and he prized his difference. He didn't want to be like everybody else. But I don't really know that he could explain it any more than you or I could explain it. He he was working in the cotton fields as well. I mean, his father didn't own the farm. His father rented the farm. There were white tenant farmers, there were black tenant farmers. Sam worked in the fields and and could give you quite a lecture on Mules and plows and cotton rows, and (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but he uh, responded to the music he heard. It wasn't music. It was it was almost a life response that he heard coming from the black sharecroppers in particular. He also responded to the social inequity that he observed around him, and and I know that this is true. I mean, you might think, well, this is somebody speaking in his 50s, 60s, 70s, long after the Civil Rights Revolution has uh, been joined, and it's somebody who just is looking back and inventing it, But but in speaking to members of his generation from the family, they all agreed that Sam had embraced this kind of sense of, uh, uh, not embraced the injustice, embraced this reaction to the injustice that he saw around him and articulated his feelings in ways that were not particularly comfortable for some people, some other members of the family. mm mm-hmm. And then he heard it coming from the black church, which was just a block and a half, from the church that he and his family attended. And he would go down there every Sunday afternoon and just be caught up in music that was invested in so much belief and that carried you away in a, in a way, in a manner that the music in his own church, even though he sang in the choir, he sang bass in a quartet, but he felt there was never that emotional release. And there was never that sense of the integrality of music, of how important of vital music was in the same way that Uncle Silas's stories were
2: vital. We're talking to Peter Guralnik, author of uh, the new book, Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock. And Peter, to get people a sense of the timeline, Sam Phillips spends the 40s as a radio announcer. In the early 50s, he starts a label, and he calls it Phillips, and it folds after one record, right? Well, it does.
3: He had no intention of starting a label. He got carried away with uh, by, with the enthusiasm of meeting Dewey Phillips this very charismatic DJ on WHBQ, Red Hot and Blue. But he had had his studio going for the for I think eight or nine months at that point. Mm.
2: And so then two years later, he starts, uh, he tries again. And this time he calls it Sun. And mm-hmm. this time the results are really different.
3: He started the label because his vision originally, his vision of recording, it was, as he said, he wanted to record some of the great Negro talent of the South that had no opportunity to be recorded otherwise. And that's what he set up a studio for in 1950, it opened on January 2nd, 1950, with an open invitation, which was a difficult one to, to export. And eventually uh, Joe Hill Lewis, a blues singer named Joe Hill Lewis, a one-man band named Joe Hill Lewis, wandered into his studio. And he said, well, this is just what Memphis needs, a studio. And and Joe Hill-Lewis became Sam's ambassador to the black community. He would record the music, but he wouldn't, I don't know that he would use this term, but he wouldn't sully himself with selling the music. And he set up licensing deals first with the Bahari brothers and Modern, then with uh, Leonard Chess, the Chess Records.
2: Yeah, I've always been fascinated by that Chess, Sun Studios, Sam Phillips kind of connection because, you know, some of the key artists, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're known as Chess artists, but they're known as Sun artists. B.B. King's initial recordings
3: were done by Sam Phillips for the modern label, but he met Leonard Chess on, I think, something like March 2nd, 1951. They hit it off, Leonard Chess proposed a deal, and three days later, three or four days later, he recorded Rocket 88 by Ike Turner and his Delta Cats. And Rocket 88 really embodied a great deal of what he had originally envisioned for the music. I mean, it was upbeat because Sam was a rhythm man he was very much into the rhythm although he appreciated lots of other things too and Rocket 88 he saw as having this propulsive rhythm having a contemporary theme i mean who who could want who could want anything more than to be driving a uh, a rocket 88 mm-hmm. and Jackie Brenston and the Delta Cats just gave it a kind of treatment that just carried a, a fairly ordinary song away plus the fact that the guitarist amp had fallen out of the trunk on the way up, busted a, a tube and Sam just, they thought that would be the end of the session and Sam just said well that gives it an original sound because Sam prized difference above everything and you can hear the buzz all the way through it. It's the kind of thing that if you took it to a major label they would say well that's fine but you're going to have to record that over, we got to get that buzz out of the uh, out <laughs> of the recording. But the song was a number one hit, Rocket 88 by Jackie Bernstein and the Delta Cats was a number one hit on the R&B charts And amazingly enough, I mean, I only discovered this as I was working on the galleys. It sold over 100,000 copies, which is an astonishing figure for that time.
0: We'll continue talking to Peter Guralnik about Sam Phillips and the legendary Sun Records label in a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later, Adele has sold millions of copies of her new release. But is it worth a Buy It rating? Stay tuned.
1: In my rocket and don't be late baby we we're pulling out about hands, passing going round the corner and get a fifth everybody in my car's gonna take a little dip. move on out oozing and cruising along Morning, and I looked out the door. I can tell that old milk cow the way she Holy oh. fellas, that
3: don't move me. Let's get real, real gone for a change. Well,
1: I morning, and I looked out the door. I can tell that milk cow, I can tell the way she alone. Now, if you'll my milk cow.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis here with Greg Cott, and we've been talking with Peter Goralnick about his new book, Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. That voice, of course, belongs to Elvis Presley, a recording from December 8, 1954, called Milk Cow Blues Boogie. But it's fair to say the sound belonged to African-American musicians, specifically in that case, to Kokomo Arnold. You know, Peter, I bring this up because a lot has been made about Elvis and Sam appropriating black music, that notion uh, that uh, if he could find a white boy that could sing like these black artists, he could make millions. You know, according to some, it was a cold and calculated move, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You've heard this. He didn't keep Elvis on the label for long. Uh, He sold the contract to RCA in 1955. But Peter, if you could talk about Elvis' impact on Son and Sam.
3: Well, the simple thing was that he never lost. This is like talking about Aretha Franklin or Sam Cooke, and you say about them they never left the church, and they didn't. It didn't matter what they sang. They never left the church, and Sam never left black music. That was what he believed in. That was the sound that he believed in, but... Having had this vision of not only Ike Turner's music, not only Rocket 88, but when he, discovered, when he discovered Howlin' Wolf, and he said of Wolf, this is where the soul of man never dies, that was his response to the first time he heard Howlin' Wolf on the radio. He believed that Howlin' Wolf could reach millions, that there was no limit to the market that Howlin' Wolf could reach, and he said, in retrospect, Howlin' Wolf could have been as big as Elvis Presley if I could have continued to record him.
1: How many, oh yeah...
3: This is one of, the, one of the things that Sam says that I'm not prepared to fully endorse on a rational basis. On an emotional basis, I agree with him. There's no one, there's no one greater than Howlin' Wolf. I, de- I dedicated the Last Highway to Sam and to Howland Wolf without fully realizing the connection. But how he intended to create this mass audience for Howland Wolf, I'm not sure. But the thing was, uh, what, uh, after a certain amount of time, after dedicating himself to working, 18 to 20 hours a day recording this music and having hits of his own on the Sun label, which he finally formed, he he came to realize that he couldn't present the music the way he wanted to and felt that he wasn't being treated the way that he would have liked to have been treated in business by the Baharis or by, by the Chess Brothers. I mean, it wasn't the worst thing in the world, but it wasn't the way he wanted to do it and having formed Sun Records and having had hits with Rufus Thomas, with Little Junior Parker, who was then Little Junior's Blue Flames, he came up against a ceiling that he had refused to recognize emotionally, that he believed he could overcome, and he, and he came to realize that even with a big r b hit, he couldn't reach more than fifty to 100,000 listeners at the most.
1: Ain't nothing but a bow cat Been scratching at my dough Ain't nothing but a bow cat Been scratching at my door You can purr, pretty kitty But I ain't gonna rub you no more oh, rub
3: you. And that they were going to be predominantly black. And he truly believed, as he had from the time he was a child, just as he did when he first went to Beale Street at the age of 16 in 1939, he truly believed that this was music for everybody and that everybody should have the opportunity to hear it. And that I think that was when he conceived of the idea that the only way to reach that larger audience was if he could find a white man with the Negro sound, and he said, much more important, the Negro feel. I mean, Negro being the term of the day and, and a, a term of respect. And once the music broke through, no doubt whatsoever that... The gates would just break wide open, that the divisions in music would would, uh, break down. And then what would follow would be not—he wouldn't have called it—I mean, you couldn't call it rock and roll because he didn't know what it would be. But it would be the opportunity for great musicians like Big Joe Turner, Ray Charles, Chuck Berry, for them to reach uh, a mainstream audience. And that's pretty much what happened.
0: The rock and roll business, I mean, that term hadn't really even been invented. Some people say when he recorded Rock 88, that was the birthplace. But this idea of creating sort of a universal music that didn't have a genre attached to it was revolutionary, right? Sam's vision was that country, blues, R&B, race music, pop music, these were all just categories that divided people. And he seemed to be striving for the sound That was going to bring all those genres together and all those people together by extension well
3: yeah no absolutely but it went beyond music for sam this was a social a racial a musical and a class revolution because he felt there was nothing more important in sam's life than his belief in democratic principles democratic ideals democratic vistas and he believed and i'll subscribe to this belief that it was the manner in which not just music but people are consigned to categories was—he just believed it was wrong. Everyone has something to say. It's really a Whitman-esque vision. I don't know that Sam read Whitman, but uh, you know, I hear America singing, and he truly believed that. He believed that to the depths of his soul.
1: Same as Sunny, Tennessee. It hey, Portland Maine is just the same as Sunny, Tennessee. Any old place that I hang my hat is home sweet home.
0: To me. You describe very well how he had these formative recording sessions with Howlin Wolf, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash. These were not fully formed. Artists yet, or they didn't have a they didn't really seem to have a sense of what they sounded like or what they wanted to sound like, and it didn't seem like Sam knew that either. But the amount of time that he put into exploring what's really inside of you it was fascinating to me. Great deal of patience there and belief. In not only himself, but in the artists that he brought into those studios. I mean, that was just a gut, gut call on his part, right? That it was, there was, it was something to- in there. total
3: belief that they had something to say and that they simply had to be given the opportunity to say it. I mean, Marion Keisker, who was his assistant, she always said it was astonishing how much patient, patience Sam showed in a man not ordinarily given to patience. Mm-hmm. Somebody could tell him that they would be in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and they might not show up until three in the morning, but Sam would still be there, and he wouldn't show the least bit of uh, uh, you know of impatience. But I think that one of the aspects of his genius was the fact that he had sufficient belief that he was willing to sit there and to listen and to wait for whatever it was that was going to reveal itself to reveal itself. So that I mean, when Elvis came in for his for, it wasn't even a recording session that Elvis came in with Scotty and Bill. It was it was more like an audition. And Elvis sang ballad after ballad, and it wasn't that Sam didn't like the ballads, but he didn't feel that this was Elvis's mark. This was not or this was not the way Elvis was going to make his mark upon the world. I love you because you understand.
2: single thing I try to do.
3: But the instant that Elvis started during a break, during a Coke break, and they're just about ready to give up on the session, they've been there for hours, and, and the instant that Elvis started just flailing away or frailing away on the guitar and playing, that's all right, and the blues, it was nothing, like nothing else that he had done to that point. Sam just immediately pricked up. And he said, Okay, what's that?
1: That's alright. That's alright. That's alright, and uh, mama anyway do. Well, mama, she done told me, Papa done told me too. Son that guy, you foolin' wishy ain't no good for you, but that's alright. That's alright.
2: You know peter uh, many of these elvis recordings were huge hits and it's interesting to think about that when you visit sun studios today that that room is tiny it's so small Mm -hmm. you know but it looms so large in musical history tell us about the sound that sam was going for and what was so special about that studio
3: i think what's special about it i mean is was sam's dedication he built it Probably according to an army engineering man, I mean, he, Sam studied sound. His great boast, he would say, you know, I'm not, I don't know about a lot of things, but the one thing I do know is about sound. And when he spoke about his childhood memories, he spoke with such precision about the sounds that he heard, you know, the sound of a hoe hitting the ground and then maybe hitting a rock, the sound of whip, a whippoorwill, just the absolute silence, the wind going through the trees. And from Sam's point of view, sound was everything. He would far rather lose his sight, as Uncle Silas did, than lose his hearing, as his Aunt Emma did. And in that room, he built the room by hand uh, according to the precepts of sound that he had, which I can't recapitulate. I mean, it's just all about, you know, no right angles. And uh, in recording, in doing his recordings, he believed most of all that microphone placement was key to the sound that you got across. Eventually, he invented this slapback, which was a kind of repeat echo, and that gave him an artificial way to create what he called a little bit of beautiful clutter, the way in which people hear music (laughs) in real life as opposed to the sterile perfection of a recording studio. And you can hear, if you listen to alternate takes of uh, various classic cuts, you can see... How the sound changes from take one to take four or take five.
1: On. Yeah, a come on over, baby. baby, you can't go wrong, I'm not a whole lot of
3: I mean if you listen, for example, to the early takes of Whole Lot of Shaking, Jerry Lee has his cousin and soon-to-be father-in-law, J.W. Brown on electric bass, and that bass is all over those first couple of takes. By the finish take, which might have been take four or take five, you can't hear the bass at all.
1: Yeah, I said shake baby shake said shake, baby shake. Come on over. Oh, I'll shake.
3: I guess I would think Sam was a, so, uh, enough of a diplomat that he didn't banish J.W. Brown from the studio. I just think he took the microphone off of his uh, off of that bass.
2: <laughs> He's running in there, moving mics around. Yeah, yeah right.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Nobody noticed the difference, right, until uh, until the recording was done. But um, I mean,
3: with his slapback, I mean, just just briefly, with this delayed or repeat echo that he created by having two tape recorders and having the second uh, tape recorder, the this Ampex three hundred and fifty. Uh, the sound from that coming back in just a little bit behind the live sound. And the musicians couldn't hear this. But with that, it's a very variable sound. And again, people speak about slapback, this echo effect as being the key element of sun. Well, if you listen to it, it's used extremely differently on different recordings. And Sam Mm -hmm. manipulated this by hand, by ear, uh, and manipulated the length of time between the uh, first sound and it's delayed echo. And sometimes, for instance, with That's All Right by Elvis, there's no slapback at all. I think because he just saw that the purity of that sound and felt that slapback wasn't going to add anything to it. So, I mean, it's an aesthetic, which I don't know that he he ever has given full credit for.
0: You know, I think the takeaway for me, uh, Peter, with Phillips's recording was Simplify, take stuff away rather than keep adding... And, uh, you know you mean like take, taking taking J.W. Brown's
3: bass away. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> but I mean, even like when, when you write about Great Balls of Fire, the Jerry Lewis track, it's basically Trump's, drum's piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, As you say, a tour de force of basically two instruments and, and a vocal.
1: You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain Too much love drives a man insane You broke my will, but what a thrill Goodness Great Balls of Fire
0: and you know, part and parcel of that song is this incredible dialogue that Jerry Lee Lewis and Sam Phillips have in the studio while it's taking place with, at one point, Jerry Lee declaring that, man, I got the devil in me mm-hmm. while he's reco- before he records his take. Explain what was going on there. Basically, you have
3: somebody in Jerry Lee Lewis, someone who has been who is sincerely religious to this day, who is passionately religious. And uh, Jerry Lee felt that it was, uh, it was profaning. A, you know, mm-hmm. a, uh, later on, he did this jump in Jehoshaphat, a big blonde baby, and saying jumpin in Jehoshaphat was, didn't profane anything. You listen to this dialogue between the two of them, and Jerry Lee gets into an almost preacher-like mode and is seriously, terribly disturbed
1: H E L L. God, the mighty, great of fire. Well, That's right. That. And it, and it, it. says, it says, make merry with the joy of God only. But when it comes to worldly music, rock and roll, anything like that, you have brought yourself into the world, and you're in the world, and you hadn't come from out of the world, and you're still a sinner.
3: And then you hear Sam calming him down, and so now Jerry. <laughs> now Jerry, and he's basically saying, "You know, are you telling me that music can't lead people towards the kind of feeling that religion represents, and you listen to this dialogue and it's just and it's an astonishing piece of dialogue it's astonishing evidence to the passion that went into the music and to the belief that propelled not just the artists but Sam's belief in the music as embodying this spiritual essence which jerry lee is denying absolutely i mean jerry lee is speaking from the tenets of the uh, first assembly of god church uh, (laughs) which um wasn't that music didn't have a place in it but this kind of music was not something which there was no way that this was a pathway to heaven and Hmm. sam is saying this is a pathway to heaven this is a manner of speaking of your belief it's a manifestation of God.
1: When you think that you can't, can't do good, yeah, rock and roll. Exposure. You can do good, Mr. Phillips. Don't uh, get me wrong. Wait a minute. minute, minute. Now, what I mean, I say, do you good. You can have a kind heart. I don't mean. I don't mean. You can help people. You no, can save souls. No, 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 no. no, no. Yes,
2: never it. We're talking to Peter Garalnick about don't his new book, Sam so. Phillips: The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll, here on Sound Opinions. All right, Peter, I'm going to pose a question to you. You've got in front of you a 15- or 16-year-old kid who is voraciously curious about music. But to him or to her, 50s music is Happy Days on TV mm-hmm. or the Broadway uh, you know, rendition of Million Dollar Quartet. What song would you play this kid to say, this, this is the sound? I would say listen to Moaning at Midnight, the mm-hmm. eeriness
3: of it, the way in which it just... It just has this uh, otherworldly, unearthly kind of feel. Helen Wolf. But, you know, is that the essence of Sun Records? I, I I, mean, it wasn't on Sun Records, but is that the essence of Sam Phillips? It's the essence of everything that he was seeking to accomplish, everything that he heard, in everything that propelled him into the recording studio.
1: There's somebody knocking on my door.
3: Another way, a song like Jerry Lee's A uh, Whole Lot of Shaking Going On is so perfect and such an imperfect, perfect encapsulation of the joyousness that Sam felt was behind the musical moment. So, I mean, but basically what you would want to say to that 16-year-old or that 17-year-old is what Sam was saying all of his life, which is just be open to the experience. Don't slap a category on it. Don't slap some kind of label on it. You know, be open to what's behind it. Yeah, here in the
0: soul hmm
3: Here in the soul, yeah. sure.
0: Peter, I, I think that's a great way to describe it. And, uh, you know, I would just add, from my personal taste, I might point people to something. I mean, you mentioned two tracks particularly in the book, Elvis's uh, version of Mystery Train, mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, Johnny Cash with Folsom Prison Blues, which I think was were two tracks that, again, I think Sam had an integral role in the way those songs ended up sounding and and, and the universality that they ended up having. With Mystery Train... In a sense, what's created
3: with Mystery Train is that feeling of spontaneity that Sam felt was at the heart of all music. And I, we don't have any other any alternate takes of Mystery Train, and the way it sounds, you know, one would like to imagine there were no alternate takes. But you can hear Elvis laughing at the end; just he, the song trails off in laughter. That, mm-hmm. and you feel like that's so much what Sam was aiming for. I think that would be another perfect representation of what Sam was trying to extract from the, from the musician from the artist you know that sense of joy of spontaneity of individuality and it comes through so strongly but it also what enables it to come through is that sense of simplicity for which he was always striving it's just cut back to its pure essence and that's what you get.
1: Train, train.
3: The interesting thing with Folsom Prison was that when Johnny Cash first sang it, when he, when he demoed it or whatever it was, an early take of it, his voice sounds so kind of fluty. It's almost like you had Marty Robbins come in to sing a love song. I mean, this is not to, to disparage Marty Robbins, who was a very soulful singer, but this you don't think of Johnny Cash and Marty Robbins in the same, uh, in the same breath. And he's singing in a, in a register, in a higher register, Sam didn't see the song to begin with, but I think John kept coming back to it, or at least it was a song that clearly meant something to him. And eventually Sam saw a universality in the song, a, a sense that same sense of, of thwarted freedom, that sense of, of the need, the, you know, just the, the primacy of, of freedom and how important this was in everybody's life and the idea of being locked up in jail as being, you know, the antithesis of this. And, and this was what he sold to Johnny Cash, I think, was just the idea that it had a broader appeal.
2: Yeah, I mean, who among us hasn't felt occasionally like shooting a man in Reno just to watch him die? And, and Well, Sam, you're right, a very, it's a very
3: common feeling. Sure, <laughs> Sam and
2: Johnny made it feel like, well, yeah, we are like we all have a little of that in us.
3: The, the, the interesting thing, I think, about Johnny Cash is that he, as much as anybody I mean, people like Howlin' Wolf and Jerry Lee Lewis, their personas were themselves. But the thing with Johnny Cash was I think he self-consciously or consciously fashioned a persona. And you can hear that persona taking shape on Sun, and it grows even more on his Columbia recordings.
1: Well, if they freed me from this prison If that railroad train was mine I bet I'd move it on a little farther down the line Far from Folsom Prison that's where I want to stay And I'd let that lonesome whistle Blow
0: my blues away We've been talking to Peter Guralnik about Sam Phillips, the man who he says invented rock and roll. Peter, it's been a real treat. Thanks for joining us on Sound Opinions. Well, thanks. I really enjoyed this.
1: People, you know what? My baby's left me, and she hadn't come back. And I'm gonna get on this old train and see can I find them?
2: So now we have a question for you listeners. Johnny Cash, Howlin Wolf, Jerry Lee Lewis, what are your favorite Sun recordings? Have you visited that historic but tiny studio in Memphis and what do you make of Sam Phillips' contributions to rock and roll? Give us a call to share your opinions on the air at 888-859-1800. When we come back, not the king but the queen. We're going to review the latest from Adele. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
1: I'm going to like a movie You sound like a song My God, this reminds me Of when
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a little bit of the song, When We Were Young, the second single from Adele's third album, 25. Greg, you called her Godzilla earlier. (laughs) You meant that in terms of commercial impact. No exaggeration to say she is the most significant artist commercially to arrive on the scene in 15 years. She sold almost 3.4 million copies of this record this uh, week. And uh, you have to go back to 2000 to find a record anywhere close. In Sync sold 2.8 million back then of no strings attached. The difference was people still were buying CDs there. There was no download and there was no mm. streaming. She emerged really out of nowhere in the UK when she was 18. Her debut album, 19, spawned that huge hit single, Chasing Pavements, really put her on the map. You know, album number two, she's firmly embraced already by the big money music industry. 21 is produced by Ryan Tedder and Rick Rubin, both super producers. 2012, she gives us a song for the James Bond film, Skyfall, and then she disappears from the scene for a while. Stays Home is raising a child, suffering from writer's block by her own account, Then something kicks into gear, and she gives us 11 new tracks on 25. In addition to Ryan Tedder being back, we've got Max Martin, that Swedish super producer, Greg Kirsten, Danger Mouse, The Smeezingtons. It's a who's who of the top 10, really. Let's play a track from this record, and we'll get into our opinions when we come back. This is Million Years Ago by Adele from 25 on Sound Opinions.
1: I only wanted to have fun, learning to fly, learning to run. I let my heart decide the way when I was young. Deep down, I must have always known that this would be inevitable. To earn my stripes, I'd have to pay and bear my soul.
0: years ago from the new Adele album 25 that's my favorite song on the record Jim for a couple of reasons I think it moves the bar a little bit for her in terms of her ambition it suggests the vibe of a Brazilian bossa nova or some of the autumnal ballads that Sinatra was singing in the 50s and I hadn't heard her sort of attempt this kind of a song before and it's refreshing she's got a great voice obviously it's the transparency in that voice the power of that voice the fact that she co-writes all her songs, I mean, her lyrics aren't exactly poetry, but I think people value the transparency in those lyrics. She seems to be singing about her life, obviously revisiting this relationship that was at the core of 21. She hasn't moved on a great deal emotionally since then. No. She still, still seems no. to be living in 21 land emotionally, but she's, she's moved on in her life, and, and she's not really talking about that as much. But I think more significantly, she hasn't moved on musically. There were so many expectations attached to this record, given the huge sales of 21, that she probably couldn't possibly have hit a Grand Slam. Of course, the public is saying, we love this. But really, it's very conservative. And she changed the names of a lot of her producers. I mean, she expanded her producing team She's added new producers like Tobias Jesso, who gave her that song, When We Were Young. Or Danger Mouse is also producing on this record. Bruno Mars. These are new names, but they really don't. It's almost like they're cowed by the whole, uh, you know, Adele. She's got to have a ballad to sing, and it's got to sound a certain way. And they're putting her back in that pocket. I think based on that first record and the singles off of 21, which I liked a lot, she's got a lot more in her. She can be challenged more. I'm let down by this record. For those two songs, I'm going to give
2: it a try. But the rest of it is pretty boring, I think. I think this record is a huge disappointment, probably the biggest disappointment of this century, Greg. Wow. I, it's a trash-it record for me, absolutely. Look, I was a huge Adele fan with 19. The second album is the sound of Hollywood and big budgets and cash registers. And now this third album is even worse. The lyrics are facile, superficial, and insulting to your intelligence. Mm -hmm. I want every single piece of you. I want your heaven and your ocean, too. You look like a movie. You sound like a song. Don't pretend you don't want me. Our love ain't water under the bridge. I can't love you in the dark. I feel like we're oceans apart. Adele, the music is sterile, flaccid, wimpy, bland, uh, you know, the the lyrics are even worse. You are better than this. You are so much better than this. This voice is extraordinary. Her personality and her charisma, she is a star, no doubt about it. I, I got to give 25 a trash I'm the only person in the universe, apparently, but I ain't buying it. However, we want to hear what you think. Why do you love Adele or why do you agree with me? It's possible. Give us a call at 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week?
0: Well, next week, Jim, uh, we've got some records you're definitely going to want to buy. At least we think you should. We've got our best
2: albums of 2015. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Libby Gormley.
3: Any messages while I was gone?
1: No. Oh, yes. Yeah. Important. Well, rather, Miss Johnson phoned again today. I told her what you said to say, that you were not
3: about.
0: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800.
3: New messages.
2: This is Tim from Aurora, Illinois. Uh, I was just listening and heard you guys talk about the new Kurt Cobain montage of Heck album. And I totally agree that it's horrible that they would go through and take all of his information and put it out. But it's pretty interesting to hear what a true artist sounded like in his off time. Even that Yodeling song that you guys played uh, was pretty cool for being able to hear somebody just kind of goofing around. And I sounded to me like he was maybe just... Figuring out different ranges that his voice could hit, and maybe that could have been a future song. We go through CDs of old artists that we like the same way we listen to something about. Lincoln's letters. We go through them even though they didn't want them to be made available, but it's of interest. I mean, all information is good information. So,
3: thanks. Have a good night. My name is Jan. I'm an older person, but Kurt Cobain did have some good music, and releasing this drudge of his pain is totally inappropriate. It's okay if his family wants to hear it, but it's very inappropriate, and it's sad that the widow... Is letting this go out. She, as an artist, should know better. Anyway, that's my comment. Thank you. Lost my head there. Lost my
1: head there. I don't wanna
0: sit around, walk around today. i much rather live Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Chris from New York. I uh, really enjoyed your Turkey Shoot episode. For me, it's probably got to be Kurt Vile's new record. I believe uh, I'm
3: going down. I couldn't help but be disappointed. I found that the songs that really appealed to me were the piano driven songs. And, you know, Kurt Vile is, is one of the best guitarists around today. You know, his last album, Waking Out a Pretty Days, was just so inventive and, and technically impressive and rocking. And this album lacks that. So that's my submission. Uh, really love the show. And thanks so much. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, um, I was listening to your show about the move And I have to say,
2: after seeing Keith Emerson and Herbie Hancock, one that you didn't mention that was actually doing things at the same time and maybe before Herbie, the piece that came out in 72 it was by Doug on black jazz label and it's a song he did called Jihad J-I-H-A-D the song has one of the best move solos I have ever heard thank you This is Murray Lynn Anderson in Burnett, Texas. I very much enjoyed your program on the Moog synthesizer. I was kind of sorry that you did not spread out just a little bit to include the Simeon synthesizer and the group from the East Village called Silver Apples. My friends used to call that psychedelic sex music. It was some of the most awesome, throbbing, overwhelming music at the time it just pulsated in it ran
0: through the room like nothing you've ever heard before it was amazing thank you
3: no more messages